reading this evening is 1 Timothy and chapter 5. chapter 5, commencing at verse 1. Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father, and the younger men as brethren, the elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters with all purity. Honour widows that are widows indeed. But if any widow have children or nephews, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents, for that is good and acceptable before God. Now she that is a widow indeed and desolate, trusteth in God and continueth in supplications and prayers night and day. But she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. And these things give in charge that they may be blameless. But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith, and is worse than an infidel. Let not a widow be taken into the number under threescore years old, having been the wife of one man, well reported of for good works, if she have brought up children, if she have lodged strangers, if she have washed the saints' feet, if she have relieved the afflicted, if she have diligently followed every good work. But the younger widows refuse. For when they have begun to wax wanton against Christ, they will marry, having damnation because they have cast off their first faith. And withal they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but tattlers also and busybodies speaking things which they ought not. I will therefore that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully, for some are already turned aside after Satan. If any man or woman that believeth hath widows, let them relieve them, and let not the church be charged, that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honour, especially they who labour in the word of doctrine. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the labourer is worthy of his reward. Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Them that sin rebuke before all that others also may fear. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one another, doing nothing by partiality. Lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partaker of other men's sins. Keep thyself pure. Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake, and thine often infirmities. Some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. Likewise also the good works of some are manifest beforehand, and they that are otherwise cannot be hid. As ever we trust that the Lord 
but that is an special blessing in the reading of this precious, infallible word. Amen. Well, this evening we are undertaking, would you believe, our seventh study in this first letter of Paul to Timothy. And God willing, it is my intention that we shall also study Paul's second letter to Timothy during the remainder of this year, and hopefully his letter to Titus also. As I mentioned before, these three epistles are often referred to as the pastoral epistles. Perhaps not only because they are addressed to two early Christian pastors, but also because they give us guidance as to both the qualifications and the responsibilities of elders and pastors. Both Timothy and Titus were Paul's sons in the faith, and we know that both had pastoral responsibility. Timothy was at Ephesus and Titus was on the island of Crete. And we know that Paul wrote to them with the intention of seeking to help them to ensure that what took place in those churches for which they were responsible would be right and acceptable in God's sight. We saw one of Paul's reasons for writing to Timothy earlier in chapter 3. Paul wrote this, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly, but if I tarried on, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, pillar and ground of the truth. You may recall that in our last study we considered how it had actually been foretold that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits, and doctrines of devils. And we saw then how important it is to resist anything that is contrary to sound doctrine. God has said that marriage is a good thing, and so we must oppose any who forbid marriage. If someone chooses to remain single for the Lord's sake, then that shouldn't be criticised. But those who want to marry should also be allowed to marry, and to do so without criticism. We saw also that if someone chooses to be a vegetarian, then that's their business. But vegetarian mustn't be championed as a more ethical way of life. It's evident from what Paul said about meats that he had in mind that which involves the killing and the eating of living creatures. Referring to meats, Paul wrote this, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused, if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. And we know that the fact that Paul writes of every creature shows that it isn't wrong to kill any, provided it's received with thanksgiving. We know that it's sanctified by the word of God and prayer. We also saw in our last study how important it is for ministers, those who minister God's word, to remind their congregations of things that they have already been taught. Paul wrote to Timothy along those lines, if thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, 
nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. The scriptures repeat the same truths over and over again. And therefore we ought not to be critical when we are reminded of something that we have heard before. Rather we should be grateful that we are being put in remembrance of these things. We also considered in our last study how bodily exercise is a profit only temporarily. But the exercise in unto godliness is profitable both for the here and now and for eternity. We are to labour after godliness, realising that we may well suffer reproach for so doing. The cultivation of godliness will benefit believers not only in this world, but will result in blessedness for them for eternity. And so it will repay believers to consider how best they can cultivate godliness. Finally, in our last study, we saw how ministers are to be examples to those to whom they minister and to give themselves wholly to their ministry, which will profit both themselves and their hearers. This evening, we shall be studying the whole of 1 Timothy chapter 5, and I trust that we shall see that in Timothy's day, the church assumed responsibility for the care of church widows in some instances. Well, we now have a national welfare system which does the same job, some might say, but this doesn't mean that the church now has no role to play in relieving the needs of those in want. Also this evening we will look at the relationship that should exist between elders, church elders, and those to whom they minister. In fact, we might say that the whole of 1 Timothy chapter 5, as a whole we shall see, has to do with relationships between various people in churches. The first two verses of our chapter set the scene. Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father, and the younger men as brethren. The elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters with all purity. As an elder, it would sometimes be necessary for Timothy to exercise discipline in the church. And Paul tells him to do this with loving concern and with gentleness, not in a cold-hearted way and without respect. And I feel that these suggestions, these instructions could be taken on board by all of us as we consider how we relate to other people in the church. Here in verse 1, an elder is an older man as opposed to someone in office as a church elder. And the Greek word translated here as rebuke could equally have been translated as rebuke sharply. There's a difference between the, the rebuke here in verse 1 and the rebuke in verse 20, as we shall see when we get to that verse. But here we see Paul advising Timothy that he is to treat older men with respect, as a son might treat his own father. Now it may sometimes be necessary for a younger man to rebuke an older man in the church, but it must always be done with respect. Now to treat someone is to appeal to them 
with gentle reasoning. And the scriptures teach that old age generally ought to be respected. Any society that takes care of its old people can be considered civilized to some extent. And one of the first signs I suggest of a breakdown in any society is the ill treatment of its old folk. In the church, older men were to be treated as fathers, and in his dealings with the younger men in the church, Timothy was to treat them as though they were his brothers. It may be that he would have to rebuke some of them on occasions, but if that was the case, he was to do so with brotherly love. In the same way, the older men were to be treated with the respect that their age deserved, so older ladies were to be so treated. They were to be treated, looked upon as mothers, and the younger ladies as sisters. Thus we see, do we not, that the church really is a family. It's an extended family. And when someone becomes part of God's family, then we might say that they acquire lots of new relatives. And much to the chagrin of those members of our own families who remain unbelievers at this time, the ties linking us to our spiritual family can often be stronger than those linking us to our own physical families. Now, we might find people in our families that don't like that. And um, uh, that's just something that happens when we become a believer. We are strong links to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, we mustn't overlook the point that Paul makes as to how we are to treat younger women as sisters with all purity. All men have to be careful in their relationships with young women, but especially ministers. You know, Satan knows men's weaknesses, and a man's ministry could be ruined by an isolated instance of inappropriate behaviour. A wise minister will take steps to ensure that he is never placed in what could be a compromising position with someone of the opposite sex. Now here's a question for us this evening. Were there many more widows than widowers in Timothy's day? Or was Paul concerned for them because it was only widows who would have been considered as being unable to support themselves. It's been the case in this country for some time now that women generally outlive men. Although the number of years by which they outlive men has been steadily reducing in recent times, and it seems women have outlived men down the centuries, irrespective of their country of origin, even when lifespans for both sexes were not what they are now. So it's probable, I would say, that widows outnumber the widowers at Ephesus and that some of these may have been destitute. They may have been unable to support themselves. As this question arises, who should provide in society for those who are unable to provide for themselves? As I mentioned at the outset this evening, we now have a national welfare system. But this wasn't the case of Ephesus. And so the church or churches there had to consider what help they could give and to whom. 
and the churches would only have had limited resources, and so it was important to distinguish between genuine cases of hardship and instances where others should have taken responsibility. In case it's crossed anyone's mind as to whether the church should always try to relieve hardship, even when there is a state welfare system, well, you need look no further than chapter 1 of the Epistle of James and verse 27 where we're told this. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. In Paul's epistle to the Galatians, in verse 10 of chapter 6, we see this there. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto those who are of the household of faith. And this shows us, does it not, that widows and orphans in the church are to be given priority, but the churches can help those in need outside the church as well. Now, uh, in my own home church in Exeter, we have a church trustee. You know, we are a registered charity, a charitable trust. And one of the objects set out in that trust is, and I quote, to relieve persons who are in conditions of need or hardship, who are aged or sick, and to relieve the distress caused thereby. So uh, we've got that in our, in our church deed. And I believe it behoves us all from time to time to consider how we might help those in need, especially widows and orphans. Now Ephesus, we see that there was an abundance of widows. So it's more a question there of decided, decided who the church should help and who it possibly should not. And a considerable portion of scripture is devoted to this question. If you look, it's verses 2 to 16 of the chapter that we're considering. And so I suggest that it does deserve our attention. But before considering the detail, I should say that there are two different schools of thought as to the part to be played by widows in the church. But we will wait until we get to verse 9 before we actually consider those two views. Well, Paul begins by saying this. Honour widows that are widows indeed. The church should especially respect and care for such widows as have been left without resource. Widows indeed. Some widows at Ephesus may well have been well provided for, as is the case with some widows in our own society. But there were others who were destitute, and it was those whom the church should help. If a widow had relatives who could relieve their hardship, children or male relatives such as nephews mentioned, then they should be prepared to assume responsibility for the care of the widow. Paul wrote, but if any widow have children or nephews, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents, for that is good and acceptable before God. Now, that word requite deserves a bit of special attention since I believe it establishes a principle in family relationships. For my own part, I believe that parents 
having brought children into the world, are responsible for their upbringing. And I further believe that even when children are grown up, parents can help their children still in many ways, be it spiritually, emotionally, and even financially. I don't subscribe to that school of thought that says that parents lose all responsibility for their children once they are grown up. I also don't believe it's a parent's right to burden their children when they themselves grow old. We see here, however, the other side of the coin. Children should realise that having been lovingly nurtured by their parents, they have the opportunity to repay that love and care should their parents need help in their old age. They can requite their parents. They can pay them back out of love rather than merely out of duty, which is a good and acceptable thing to do in God's eyes. Paul noted that those who were widows indeed, and desolate or entirely alone, would evidence whether or not they trusted in God by their prayer lives. He wrote, now, she is a widow indeed, and desolate, trusteth in God, and continueth in supplications and prayers night and day. These were the widows who deserved the help of the church and not those who were unspiritual and only seemed interested in having a good time. Of that latter group, Paul wrote this, but she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. Well, I imagine that we may all have heard of merry widows, merry widows, but the implication here is that there were some who really were only interested in worldly pleasure, a sure sign that they were an unregenerate, they were spiritually dead, they had no spiritual life. It was the church's duty first and foremost to help those widows who by their actions demonstrated that they feared and trusted in God as opposed to those who were behaving wantonly. Well, having reached this point in his instructions for the treatment of widows, using discernment to decide who should be helpful, went on to write this, and these things give him chance that they may be blameless. The guidelines Paul had provided were to be given in charge. They were to be disseminated so that there will be some consistency in the treatment of widows. It was important that the church should be seen to be blameless in its treatment of those who were deemed to be widows indeed and that widows who were supported should also live blameless lives. Now verse 8 of 1 Timothy 5 applies to the care of widows, but it can also apply to other family matters as well. Paul wrote, But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Many of us here this evening who are members of the families have family responsibilities. And anyone who fails to honour his or her responsibilities is acting in denial of the faith that they purport to have. And is worse than an infidel, an unbeliever. Notice how Paul speaks of someone providing for his own and for those of his own house. 
showing us that it's not just the immediate family and any residing in the same home for whom God accounts us to have responsibility. In the immediate family, husbands can make provision so that their families will be provided for in the event of their death or illness. Children could also consider having annexes built onto their homes so that aged relatives can be accommodated should that need arise. It has to be recognised that old folk can be difficult to look after. But I don't think that the first option should be the care home or the nursing home. Mm -hmm. My personal opinion is that such places should be utilised only if it's impractical for children to care for aged relatives themselves. Now we come to the instructions where people disagree as to its meaning. Let not a widow be taken into the number under three score years old. And there are two main views on this. The first being that widows were to be enrolled, enrolled, taken into the number whereby the church took on the responsibility for their maintenance. And thus they were officially recognised as beneficiaries rather like those of you who might have heard of the Chelsea Pensions. Their names would perhaps have been on the roll of beneficiaries. The alternative view is that widows were admitted to some sort of church widow's order, a body of women who were given duties to perform on behalf of the church in return for their keep. Now whilst it's likely that those widows whom the church supported would seek to serve the church in whatever way they could. I don't believe that there was any such official order. However, I don't think that it would be at all unreasonable for a church to find a way of supporting someone in exchange for their performance of certain duties. I know of instances where ladies of slender means have been employed as church cleaners, thus providing them with an income without them having to feel that they were having to rely solely on charity. Well, whatever view we take on what was expected of widows enrolled in the church at Ephesus, we see that the qualifications for enrollment were quite specific. Let not a widow be taken into the number under three score years old, having been the wife of one man, well reported of her good works, if she had brought out children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. So there was a lower age limit of 60, and it was required of each widow that she should have been a faithful wife before she was widowed. Earlier in the study, when we considered the qualifications for elders and deacons, we saw from the original Greek that it was required of them that they should be one woman men. And the Greek here speaks of widows having been one man women. Now this doesn't mean that they were barred from enrollment if they'd been married and widowed more than once since it wasn't unusual for unmarried men to marry their brother's widows to protect family property. Also Paul, both here in 1 Timothy and in 1 Corinthians, advises young widows to remarry. What was important 
was that the widow should have been faithful to her husband and faithful in other things as well. It had to be a matter of record that she had been faithful in good works. And we see five such good works listed for our consideration. First of all, if she had been a mother, then it should be a record that she had raised her children properly. Secondly, she should have been known for her hospitality, both when she was married and since, and as far as she had been able to do so. The lodging of strangers, which we may take to be the lodging of believers in need of accommodation on their travels, was to be commended. And Paul and Timothy have both benefited from that good work when they were at Philippi. For we know that Lydia constrained them to lodge with her after she had been baptized, although we don't know whether Lydia herself was a widow. The third good work was that of washing the saints' feet. And any widow who had done this would have evidenced her humility. And that's a great quality to be prized. The fourth good work was that of helping those in distress as opportunity and a vision. Those with a reputation for helping others deserve to be helped themselves when the need arose. And the fifth and final good work is really a summary of all good works, if she had diligently followed every good work. Now, what was to happen to those widows aged below 60, or those over 60 who didn't qualify to be enrolled? Well, Paul gave Timothy some guidelines regarding the younger widows. He wrote this, but the younger widows refused. For when they have begun to wax wanton against Christ, they will marry, having damnation or condemnation, because they have cast off their first faith. And withal they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but tattlers also, and busybodies, speaking things which they ought not. I will therefore that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary, to speak reproachfully, for some are already turned aside after Satan. Well, it may seem a bit harsh at first to assume that every young widow would behave wantonly in their widowhood. But it seems that Paul's experience of young widows' behaviour was such that he felt it best that the church should make no provision for them. Perhaps a few would remain faithful to their profession, but Paul expected that the majority of them would remarry for physical reasons. It was likely that many would marry unbelievers, turning their backs on the Christian life, being more interested in a physical relationship than a spiritual one. There were those who would wax wanton against Christ, having damnation or condemnation because they have cast off their first name. There would be those who, despite being provided for by the church, would learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but tattlers also, and busybody, speaking things which they ought not. Not a pretty picture. What Paul thought would be best for young widows was that they should remarry. I will therefore that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, Give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. The some are already turned aside after Satan. 
And the inference is that they should marry believers and raise families with them and manage their homes. And in so doing, they will be seen to be setting an example which no one could rightfully criticise and would to some extent counteract the bad witness of those widows who had already gone back into the world. No doubt it was because Paul was aware, as he wrote, some are already turned aside after Satan, that he foresaw great danger in the church taking on the responsibility for younger widows. The church was only to take responsibility for some widows. And even then, not if their own Christian kinfolk could reasonably be expected to take care of them. Paul wrote this, If any man or woman that believeth hath widows, let them believe them. And let not the church be charged that it may believe them that are widows indeed. And then, having given guidance as to how to treat widows, we see that Paul goes on to provide guidance as to how church elders should be treated. First of all, he wrote this, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honour, especially they who labour in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the labourer is worthy of his reward. And the elders referred to here are church elders as opposed to older men, as can be seen from the references to their rule and to their labour in the word and doctrine. In an earlier study when we considered how an elder was to be apt to teach, you may recall I mentioned then that some hold the view that a man can be a ruling elder but not preach. And it's primarily from the verses before us this evening that they draw that distinction. But I feel that they're mistaken. I, my personal belief is that every elder should be a ruling elder and a teaching elder. Because if you look at the qualifications for eldership, you'll see that they include aptness to rule and aptness to teach. I believe that the key to understanding what Paul was getting at here is the word labour. All elders were to rule, all elders were to be engaged in preaching and teaching, but those elders who laboured in the word and doctrine were to be specially esteemed for their hard work. It was the degree, I believe, to which they carried out their role which was to be recognised, not just the fact that they carried out the role at all. Some elders were better overseers than others. They ruled well, they thus deserve special recognition, referred to as double honour here. Even more to be esteemed were those elders who not only ruled well, but toiled more assiduously than others in their teaching and preaching role. But elders weren't just to be recognised for their hard work, they were to be adequately provided for as well. And Paul quotes from both the Old and the New Testament scriptures to back up his argument. First of all, we see that he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 4, which says, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treadeth out the corn. And this Old Testament precept entitled oxen to eat of the grain that they were threshing. And Paul explained more fully in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 
how this principle was to be applied to ministers of the gospel. Verses 9 and 10 and 13 and 14 of that chapter, as well, Corinthians 9, read thus. For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth up the corn. Doth God take care for oxen, or saith it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he which ploweth should plough in hope, and he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of his hope. Going on to the next verses. Do ye not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. And when Paul writes that the labourer is worthy of his reward, he may, we don't know for sure, he may have been quoted from Luke 10 and verse 7. And if so, it would show us that that gospel was already accounted as scripture in the early days of the church. Full-time ministers must be adequately provided for by the church without budget and not on the basis which seems to have prevailed in some quarters in the past, namely to pay a man as little as can be got away with. Now not all elders are worthy of double honour, inasmuch as there will be those who fail to carry out their duties. And have we not already noted how it's possible for elders to depart from the truth and to lead others astray? What should the church do in these circumstances? Well, we need to see that whilst it's possible for an elder to go astray, it's also possible for an elder to be falsely accused. And so great care must be taken uh, in trying to arrive at the truth. That's why Paul wrote this. Against an elder, receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses, them that sin, rebuke before all that others also may fear. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one another, doing nothing by partiality. It should be obvious that Paul was not talking here about just some petty things, but about things that could damage the church if they were to be left unchecked. Serious charges against elders had to be corroborated and then they had to be properly investigated. Only if the charges were proven would further action need to be taken. But then a public reprimand would be appropriate before the assembled churches. This would discourage others from succumbing to sin themselves. No partiality could be shown in such matters irrespective of personal ties. Elders could fall into sin, they could lead others astray. It might prove necessary to rebuke an elder publicly, so there was all the more reason to ensure that the selection process for eldership was as watertight as it could be in the first place. And this is why Paul wrote, lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partaker of others' men's sins, keep thyself pure. Elders should be selected and appointed with indecent haste, but only after very careful consideration. 
if Timothy or any other good Christian elder was to act too hastily in ordaining a new elder, and that new elder subsequently proved to be unsuitable, then those involved in ordaining the new man in the first place could be held responsible for some, to some extent for the new man's sin. Elders were to keep themselves pure or unspotted from the sins of others by not precipitously admitting them to eldership. Just as Paul considered himself pure from the blood of all men on account of his faithful gospel preaching, so Timothy would be pure from the sins of other elders if he was careful in their selection. Now Paul knew that Timothy was aware of the need to keep himself pure in all aspects of his ministry. And it may be that he felt that Timothy was going too far in his abstinence from alcohol. And this would explain him writing to Timothy, drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. It seems that Timothy could often have been unwell, perhaps suffering from some gastric problems or such like, and that could have been exacerbated by the use of impure water. Regrettably, many people have used this verse to justify their consumption of alcohol. When it's clear, is it not, the poor way when they're just taking a little wine. And that, for a certain medicinal purposes only. Believers are to be temperate in all things, and all believers should agree that the drinking of alcohol to excess is something that believers should never be guilty of. Any drinking to excess is unacceptable. Well, chapter 5 of 1 Timothy closes as Paul returns to his theme of this selection of elders, and we see that he concludes his advice with these words. Some men's sins are open beforehand, going before the judgment, and some men they follow after. Likewise also the good works of some are manifest beforehand, and they that otherwise cannot be hidden. Choosing selection of elders is never going to be easy, but it will be made easier if it's remembered that a person's conduct will always be a good guide to their character. Some men's faults, we might say, are glaringly obvious, debarring them from the ministry. Others have faults yet to be revealed, but which will come to light after careful inquiry, thus ensuring that they too are debarred from the ministry. The good conduct of those fit for the ministry will be immediately apparent or will become apparent with the passage of time, not being able to be concealed. And so if Timothy followed Paul's instructions not to ordain any man suddenly, but to make proper investigation, it would soon become apparent as to who were fit candidate, candidates and those who were not. Well, as we come to a close this evening, let us resolve to make sure that we continue to treat one another with respect in our church families. Let us remember that charitable works are part of a church's ministry, notwithstanding that we may now have a national welfare system. And may we truly understand the importance of ensuring that only those who are properly qualified 
are to be selected for church leadership. Amen. Amen.